Good? Yep. Okay. Um, well, today is actually very important for me because if you know a little bit about me, I really appreciate having our staff speak. And uh, today we're going to have one of our female staff members share the life lesson. But before I introduce to you our speaker for today, You see, I have credentials in what is called the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, and women have been included in leadership from the very beginning of our history. And so our fellowship finds its roots back to 1906 and the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. Inclusive, by the way, I'll just say that. In uh, January of 1908, uh, they put out a little magazine. It was called the Apostolic Faith. And this is what they wrote. They said, when our Lord poured out Pentecost, he brought all those faithful women with the other disciples into the upper room and God baptized them all in the same room and made no difference. All women received the anointed oil of the Holy Ghost and were able to preach the same as men. By 1919, a list of 15 missionaries were compiled before uh, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, of those 15 missionaries, seven of them were female. So women, historically, in my fellowship, have been evangelists, pastors, teachers, missionaries. They conducted evangelistic campaigns, planted churches, established schools, translated scripture, laying the groundwork for the fellowship's expansion throughout Canada and actually throughout this entire globe. It's interesting, even though that, that's how we started, we still, as a fellowship, weren't perfect. It wasn't until 1984 that women were finally granted official ordination credentials. And today, approximately 6% of lead pastors in the Pentecost Assemblies of Canada are female. So with that said, we believe that God uses people for positions based on ability and call, not gender. Also, there's Galatians 3 says there is neither Jew, no, uh, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowers believers with no restrictions on race, social positions, or gender. And as I said in the series we did back a few months back called Ask Anything, the creation story itself indicates mutuality, not hierarchy, with regard to the gender of Adam and Eve. In other words, both were called to bear God's image and rule creation. That word that is used there in Genesis, Ezer, is translated helper, and it doesn't indicate this idea of submission, but rather a mutual partnership. So it's really important that we have an understanding of male and female. But also that word Ezer is used repeatedly to describe God as helping others, including Israel. And we see that in Exodus. We see that in Psalms and other places. So, according to the Bible, women in both Old and New Testament serve in leadership positions. Examples include Miriam in Exodus, Deborah in Judges, Anna in Luke, Phoebe in Rome, Romans, Priscilla in Acts in Romans, Udia in Sinte in, in uh, Philippians. The chosen lady who appears to be a pastor in 2 John 1. And a special note needs to be given to Junia in Romans uh, 16, who held the office of an apostle. So it's biblical. Now, there are some who will say to me, Jerry, wait, wait, you need to address what Paul says to 1 Corinthians, you know, 11, 1 to 16, where he restricts the role of women in the church in some context. Listen, we've preached it before, 
and I don't have time to exegete the verse here again, but they're best understood as situational to the particular cultural context rather than a universal directive, which some people have taken. Paul Jerry, what about 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15? Again, a challenging passage without question. Due to the direct call for women not to teach men, along with the appeal to the Genesis creation text for support. However, I believe, and many other scholars do believe, that Paul's admonition here occurs in the context of significant false teaching within the Ephesian church, along with other negative cultural influences. So when we look at Paul's letters to Timothy in Ephesus, um, highlight this, the, the ever-present danger of false teaching. That's what was going on, especially those who were susceptible under, uh, uh, those who were susceptible were undereducated women who were prone to being deceived due to their lack of knowledge. I'm not saying they were dumb, they were just not informed. And so what's being addressed then is not some universal hierarchy of men and women with regard to teaching. Rather, what's being is addressed is this distorted view that any woman can teach despite, despite lacking proper training. So we recognize here at Seoul that other churches, other fellowships, other denominations hold a different uh, position regarding the role of women, and it's not our division to cause, it's not our, sorry, it's, it's not our intention to cause division uh, in the larger body of Christ. But nevertheless, while respecting these differences and while continuing to respond with kindness and grace, we affirm unequivocally within our fellowship uh, an egalitarian position that celebrates the unrestricted leadership capacity of women in the church, and that's also reflective in our steering committee or our board. So in light of this position, and I appreciate the Pentecost Assemblies of Canada, and, uh, but uh, women can be fully credentialed and equipped and, and can lead in any capacity within the life of the church and the organization. And so in our church here at Seoul, we commit ourselves to intentionally celebrate and welcome the anointing and call of God to vocational ministry <laughs> on both women and men at all levels of leadership. So with that said... You need to know something that you've seen this young lady on stage before, but in a different fact. As a matter of fact, this young lady is our worship director, Steph. But Steph preaches a lot, usually, usually at me and staff meeting, but Steph preaches a lot. And um, I've often sat and just sort of looked over our staff, and you've seen it and you've experienced it, especially within the last two months. How come, how come, how come Jerry's not preaching, but the other staff are preaching? Because Jerry's working with the staff to teach them. And that is my job. That is my role. And when you see people with certain gifts, you want to be able to highlight that and work with them to deliver that. My first encounter with Steph was we were looking for a worship leader and I get a phone call and there's this Irish voice on the other end of the phone. And I'm thinking somebody's calling me from Ireland. Because when you make job descriptions public in the church world, you get applications from all over the world because people want to come to Canada. And here I thought, here's another person looking to come to Canada, but unfortunately for her, she was already here. So, of course, she started asking questions, and we started talking, and I remember this. This is the one thing I remember from our conversation. I said, what, what has drawn you to Soul Sanctuary? Like, why are you applying for this role? She goes, well, I've been on your website, and your language is different. I don't know if you ever remember saying that. No, but the words that we used and everything else was very intentionally different. 
And I thought, okay, she gets the culture. And uh, without, without questions, Steph has been a great addition to us here. And Steph has got the culture. And uh, it's with great honor and excitement I want to present to you our speaker for this morning, Steph McGowan, who's tremendously thrilled that the Irish Pavilion is here yeah. this week. <laughs> Knock it out. Thank you so much, Pastor Jerry. Hi. Whoa. Hi. Good morning. How's it going, everybody? Good. Awesome. Yeah, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning. If we haven't met, Pastor said, my name is Steph, and I get to be the worship director here at Soul Sanctuary. So, as Ryan said, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I've been living in Canada now for, it'll actually be five years in August. So, I've actually spent more of my adult life in Canada than I ever did in Northern Ireland. And when I initially arrived here, there was a lot of, let's say, Canadianisms that I had to get used to. For example, a winter hat is called a toque. Um, the phrase nougat means you're going to put it in the microwave. Um, when we say, this is the best one, when we say we're going to Timmy's, it does not mean we're going to our buddy Tim's basement. It means we're going to Tim Hortons. This one was extra confusing for me because I actually worked with someone called Tim. So I was like, oh yeah, we're going to Tim's house. We weren't. We were going to Tim Hortons. But something else that I had to learn the name of was over-the-counter medication. So in Northern Ireland, Tylenol is called paracetamol, um, I, or Advil is called ibuprofen. And Tylenol Kids is actually called Calpol. So as a kid, I loved the taste of medicine. Like I, my mom had it so easy when I was sick. She's like, you want to take your medicine? Yes, of course, mom. Like, give me it, please. You know? Um, but I was also a little bit mischievous. And when I was five years old, my love of medicine and the mischievous side of my personality collided. A lot of you are probably seeing where this is going already. So picture the scene. I'm five years old, and I'm running around the family farm, and all of a sudden, this headache just comes out of nowhere. And I can't find my mom. She, um, she worked a lot on the farm with my dad, so she was just not there. So I decided to take matters into my own hands. So here comes the mischievous part. I knew exactly where our medicine cupboard was in our house and how I could access it. So I grabbed a chair and I climbed up on the countertop so I could reach into the cabinet, open it up, and there it was. The medicine that I knew would make my headache go away. And also it just happened to taste like really good to my five-year-old taste buds. To this day, I have no idea how I managed to get the child lock off. I can't even do it now, age 27. I don't know how I did it at five years old. Um, but rather than just grabbing a spoon and taking what I knew was a healthy amount, I decided to chug the whole bottle. So a couple minutes later, mom comes in and she's like, Steph, like, what have you been up to? And I'm like, oh, I chugged a whole bottle of Calpol. And after that, I have zero recollection about what happened, except being in our local hospital, puking into a bowl that is held by a kind nurse. As I reflect on that story now, and I think about it with my family, we laugh about it because it was a mistake that I made as a kid. But what had actually happened was the thing that I hoped would take my headache away actually made my situation so much worse. And I wonder if that is actually often like us in our relationship 
with God in our own lives. That often we attempt to make things in our lives better by doing certain things or trying different solutions to fix our problems. But we actually make things much worse. And we're going to dig into that a little bit this morning as we turn to Scripture. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And in our story today, there are three main characters, a man named Jairus, his daughter, and an unnamed woman who we simply know as the woman with the issue of blood. As we dig into the story, one of the things that we know is that it is a story within a story, a sandwich story, if you will. As we read it, this will actually become more clear. So the author of the book of Mark, he adds in little details to help us draw a connection. For example, both of the women in our story need help, and both of their ailments would have made them ceremonially unclean in accordance with Old Testament law. And Pastor Andrew actually talked a little bit about that last week as we, when we focused on the demon-possessed man. As well as this, and this one is like my favorite little detail, the woman, she's been bleeding for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. So we're going to start at verse 21. So let's read together. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where the large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. So we don't know a lot about Jairus, and we know even less about his daughter. What we do know is that he is a prominent member of the community. He is responsible for synagogue facilities and administration. Jairus was someone who counted. His presence in the room mattered. He belonged. Being a person who is so well-respected, it's actually really interesting to me that he is the one who comes to Jesus. No one comes on his behalf. It's just him. And I wonder, is it safe to assume that he, it was easy for him to make his way through the crowd, that perhaps people actually cleared their path so that he could get to Jesus? You know, it's actually really interesting that he even approached Jesus in the first place because we know the synagogue leaders, they have a history of disliking him. Yet here, Jairus comes asking for help. So we'll pick up again in verse 24. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. So Jesus agrees to Jairus' request and they make their way. However, there is an interruption and it's here we're introduced to the second layer of our sandwich story. And we'll pause here for a moment because it's really important to understand what this woman's illness actually would have meant for her. If we turn back to the Old Testament read in Leviticus 15, it actually states that anything she touches or laid on is considered unclean, as is anyone who touches her. This woman, she wouldn't have been able to worship with others. She would have been divorced from her husband, and she wouldn't have been able to even live in her own home. Not only is she in physical misery, but she's also in social misery. Quite the contrast and standing and experience to what Jairus would have had in life. We also read, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors over the years. She had spent everything she had to pay them, but she got to know better. In fact, she had gotten worse. We see, much like Jairus, she is in need of a miracle. 
However, her approach is very different. And I'm curious as to whether there was a sense of shame that she wrestled with as she sought out help from Jesus. Notice she comes up behind him. She doesn't go to, to his, him face to face like Jairus did. We aren't even given this woman's name. She's known by her issue. She's known by the very thing that's wrong with her. And when it comes to those things in our lives that we're trying to fix ourselves, maybe it's a sinful habit, maybe it's a part of your heart that has been hurt by the actions of someone else, I believe there are a couple things that actually keep us stuck in that cycle. And shame is one of those things. Shame is a deeply painful emotion. When we carry shame, it impacts almost every single part of our lives, including our relationship with Jesus. I think sometimes we get confused between guilt and shame. You know, guilt can actually be a really helpful emotion. It's feeling sorry for something that you have done, but shame is actually, it's feeling sorry for who you are. You know, guilt says, I have done something bad, whereas shame, it says, I am bad. It comes to the core of our identity, and it actually says to us that you are unloved, you are unworthy because of who you are. Shame can come into our lives from a lot of different places. Perhaps you're struggling with an addiction to porn and you can't tell anyone because you're afraid of what they will think. Or perhaps someone has spoken unkind words over you and those words have become what defines your identity. Or maybe you feel so ashamed of yourself because you just feel like you're never enough. What happens when shame creeps in is actually we begin to isolate ourselves. We pull away from people and we pull away from the community that we were once part of. We actually run to every single other option to make ourselves feel better in the short term because we believe this lie that God does not want us or nor does he love us. So we binge watch our shows, we get drunk, we go back to that toxic relationship, or maybe we even try some form of religion that just checks the boxes and makes us feel a little bit better, but it doesn't actually even include Jesus. We try to fix ourselves with these things, but in reality, they make our situations worse. Just like the woman in our story. We end up then even more ashamed of ourselves. You know, you end up like five-year-old staff trying to treat a headache and you end up puking in the hospital. We'll read on, verse 28. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. So we'll pause again for a moment because there's something really important here. She thought. Notice that her thought came before her action. She thought, if I can just touch his robe. How we think our thought life is something that really matters when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. How we think about a situation can be the very thing that actually keeps us stuck. Countless times in scripture, we're reminded of the importance of our thought life. Philippians 4, verse 8, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Romans 12, 1 to 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And 2 Corinthians 10, 10 verse 5, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. 
You know, when we live in a situation long-term, it becomes normal for us. We develop a perspective that becomes hopeless. It becomes defeated, and we begin to think that we're too far gone or that God doesn't want us and can't change us. If you come back to the woman in our story, she really could have easily thought, oh, I've seen this before. I've tried everything. What is, what is the difference going to be with this guy? Remember we read earlier, she'd suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she'd spent everything she had to pay them, but she got to know better. In fact, she had gotten worse. You know, if she had been stuck in that negative thought cycle, it would have made sense to me. I don't know if she had any reason to think that Jesus could be different. I'm actually really curious as to what she had heard about him and what had went on in her heart that day as she approached him. I just wonder if there was something in her that felt like Jesus could be different. That she had heard something about him, that in her spirit, she just knew that he would be the one that healed her. I wonder also if she lived with a sense of disappointment. Disappointment that this is how her life turned out disappointed that every single thing she had tried had yielded no result. As followers of Jesus, we live in the tension of a faith of a God who does the impossible, but we also live in the reality of a world that is broken. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel exactly like the woman in our story. Like you've tried everything and it's still not getting better. Or maybe you're here saying, Steph, I have called out to Jesus time and time again, and he has not changed a single thing. Or maybe it's something different. You're saying, I have this desire deep in my heart, and I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I've been praying, but it feels like God is distant. He doesn't care. Can I tell you that I am familiar with that feeling, that I've been there? And maybe if I'm a little bit more honest, I'm still a little bit there. Last summer, I had two friends pass away to my friend Autumn. She had a really difficult battle with a really rare form of cancer. And a couple weeks later, one of my really good friends actually lost a parent. And in both situations, I had prayed and I had prayed and I had prayed and I just said, God, I just want my friends to be okay. And then they weren't. And it felt like my trust in God had been broken. I was heartbroken. I was grieving the loss of, of a friend, but I was also watching friends go through grief. Remember, Pastor Jerry talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I felt like one of the disciples in the midst of the storm saying, Lord, do you not care that we are joining? If you're feeling those things this morning, you're not alone. You're really not. I think we can learn something from the woman in our story, though, when we feel like that. I think that she shows us that sometimes the greater act of faith is is not the big miracle that we're praying for, but it's actually trusting that God is still good and he is still kind even when things don't go the way we hoped. If we move back to our story, I think we can learn from the interaction that takes place between Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood. So we'll pick up again at verse 30. Jesus realized that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Your daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace 
your suffering is over. So imagine this moment with me, Jesus. He's in a crowd of people. He's saying, who touched me? Who touched me? And in this moment, we remember he is fully God, but he is also fully human. You know, he knows exactly who it was that touched him. He knows exactly what is going to happen as this story unfolds. And as I read, I actually think that this moment, Jesus asking her to come forward is more for the woman with the issue of blood than it is for Jesus to know. Think about what we talked about earlier. Think about her social standing, about the shame she might have felt because of her condition. Not just the Old Testament ramifications, but even just the embarrassment that the affliction itself would have brought. But notice that Jesus, he doesn't stop asking. He kept on asking, looking around to see who had done it. And it takes her time to come forward. But Jesus, he doesn't stop looking for her. Just like imagine this moment with me. Our afflicted friend, she's lived in shame for 12 years. She's 12 years of living with an illness, hiding away, being deemed unclean. And then Jesus, Jesus, who is perfect love, who is completely holy, looks her in the eyes. I wonder when the last time anyone looked her in the eyes was. I think that's our starting point today. We come to Jesus. We come forward to him. Because at this moment, she is seen. This woman, she is seen not as, the, not as the woman with the issue of blood. She's not known for her issues. She's seen as a daughter of God. Doesn't that show us who Jesus is? He's deeply compassionate. He is full of love, but he's also completely holy. I'm actually really curious as to what Jesus would have felt in that moment too. I wonder, did he feel like the, the depths of the brokenness of the world, but this heart of compassion at the same time? We read in he Hebrews 4, 16, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will receive his mercy and we'll find his grace to help us when we need it the most. And then in Psalm 103, 13, 14, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. There's so much comfort in that, that Jesus, he understands our weaknesses. He's compassionate toward us in our suffering. He remembers that we're only human. He remembers that we're only dust. And this idea of coming to Jesus, you know, I used to think in my faith that, oh, I'll come to Jesus this one time and then all my problems would be solved. It's not like that. It's actually this act of coming to him again and again and again and again. And that's just like one day. And then we come again and again and again. But the second takeaway that we have in our story is, again, to follow the example of the woman. She came to Jesus, yes, but... She tells him the whole story. She tells him what she had done. You know, I think about this one. She could have really easily snuck off. There was a crowd. She could have hidden away really easily. She didn't have to come forward. However, as she does, she yields to the power of confession. She tells him what she had done. And it's actually confession that will bring healing to the shame that we have been feeling, that will help us in our unhealthy thought patterns and in our disappointment. 
It's really hard for something to heal when it's kept in the dark. James 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. There's something to be said about bringing our sin and our suffering and our truth about everything else that we have tried. But I think we also bring our hopes and our dreams to God, even the ones who, that have been kept quiet or the ones that we feel like are dead. Because I believe that God wants to be part of those things too. If you'll notice with me as the woman in our story confesses, there's actually an exchange that takes place. And I'm, I'm curious as to what would happen if she hadn't have came forward. How would she have lived the rest of her life? Healed from her issue, yes. But would she have continued on believing that she'd actually stolen her healing? Because as she comes forward, Jesus, he actually speaks to her identity. As she confesses, he speaks to her identity. What does he say to her? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Not you touching my robe. Daughter, your faith. It's by faith. No longer is she known as the woman with the issue of blood. She's a daughter of faith. Sometimes we can become so defined by the things that we struggle with that we feel like that is actually who we are. We want to come to Jesus to be healed by, from our issue, but often he actually wants to speak to our identity. He wants to speak to the root issue because I actually believe that our, a lot of our struggles as, as human beings actually come from misunderstanding of who we are, but also a misunderstanding of who God is. We haven't forgotten about Jairus and his daughter, so let's move back to our passage. It says this, While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, Your daughter is dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. Remember we said at the start that this was a sandwich story? It's actually here that we see the common the biggest common thread between both situations. And that, that common thread is faith. Remember, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. And here we see him tell Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Both characters, they have faith in Jesus. Jairus, he responds in faith when Jesus says that. He doesn't say to Jesus, don't bother, it's too late. And I wonder if sometimes that's the train of thought we can have when we come to God. And also we know that Jairus, he doesn't laugh at Jesus when the rest of the crowd does. 
And you know, as I read this story, when I look at the life of Jairus and the life of the woman with the issue of blood who's now known as the daughter of faith, what it tells me is that we can try our very best to fix ourselves, but we just can't. All our attempts to make ourselves feel better in the short term are binge-watching Parks and Rec and might lift the feelings of shame for a little bit or getting drunk on a Saturday night might give you a slight reprieve from the heaviness of disappointment or apathy. However, a lot of these quick fixes, they just perpetuate our problems. And then they make things worse. It's actually the act of coming to Jesus and trusting Jesus, which can be a big one, that will actually make a difference in our lives. In Mark chapter 4, we saw Jesus' authority over nature. Last week, Pastor Andrew reminded us of Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. And it's actually here we see Jesus' authority over disease and, and also death. Verse 41, holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kayum, which means little girl, get up. And the little girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. Jesus, he speaks to her and she comes back to life. But that's not all this moment is, though. This moment, this resurrection of this little girl, it demonstrates Jesus' authority, yes, but it also points us to Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's not that the, just that Jesus had the power to bring this little girl back to life. It's actually a foreshadowing that he would defeat death once and for all. It's the lyrics of that hymn, See What I'm Mourning. Death is dead, love is won, Christ has conquered. This week, I spent some time thinking about my friend, Autumn, and I remembered something that was said at her funeral. Autumn believed that she would either be healed here on earth by the grace of God, or that she would be healed in heaven. And for me, that captures the tension of faith, but it also points us to this bigger picture, that we don't live with a faith that is feeble or a hope that is diluted, but we actually live in the reality of the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The situations that we go through, the sin, the brokenness, the hopelessness that we feel, someday will be made new in the light of eternity because of what Jesus did for us on the cross that we have this glorious Christian hope that one day, one day, everything will be as it ought to be. That one day things will be made right. That's what we place our faith in this morning. That yes, we are called to live transformed here on earth, that God can and still does miracles here on earth, and that we're called to live as close to, close to God as we possibly can, and that every single moment matters, however, our eternal hope, the safest and sturdiest place to put your faith in this morning is the cross of Jesus Christ. Before we close, I have one final thought because I think we can learn one more thing from both Jairus and the woman that Jesus calls daughter of faith. I think they show us that any amount of faith is enough. You see, I, I read this story and I don't know if either of them fully understand who Jesus is. I think of Jairus and I think of him being a synagogue leader and of the relational history that Jesus had with them. You know, it wasn't good. And then I think about the woman and how her actions maybe would have suggested that, um, that she thought Jesus was a healer of some kind. But what they show us is that any amount of faith in Jesus is enough. 
any amount of faith is enough. It's that if you're here this morning and you're trying to understand God, if you feel like your faith is failing, that you're barely holding on by a threat, even that is enough. Because it's actually not the amount of faith that you have that saves you. It's, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. That's what transforms you. It's the power of the cross. So, Soul Sanctuary, what is your next step today? Maybe you have something you need to bring to God for the first time. Maybe for the hundredth time. Maybe you need to take some time to confess some sin and tell God the ways you've been trying to fix yourself. Maybe you need to confess your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments. Or maybe you need to take time to remember the eternal hope that you have as a follower of Jesus. As we move into a time of communion, you actually have space to do that. Before I hand over to Pastor Jerry, let's pray together. God, thank you that you are our eternal hope. God, that we that one day every single thing will be made new. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. We thank you for the cross, God. Thank you for your love for us. Holy Spirit, will you speak to us this morning? Help us to fix our eyes on you, put our faith in you today. It's your name we trust. Amen. Thank you, Steph. We do a lot of things in life and seldom stop to ask why. We develop habits and traditions, and if we're not careful, we can forget why we do certain things, especially when we gather together as a church, because for many of us, been in church for a while or a long time, some of us have grown up in church, we know what to expect. You know, maybe not a coffee break per se, but you come together, you sing, there's prayers, there's a sermon, there's an offering, you know certain components but sometimes we forget the why and I want to be very careful to explain why we do what we do so that even if somebody's new to soul or to the Christian faith they might be able to come to a place to understand completely and of course we don't take the time every Sunday okay well this is why we sing this is why we pray we don't always do that but today I want to take some time to answer the question, why do we celebrate communion, which we're about to do shortly? Like, why do we take itty-bitty portions of crackers and grape juice, right? Especially in these adult-proof containers that they give us post-COVID. Like, what's it about? And I think it's a good question. And of course, if you have your Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we can read from verses 23 to 29. But the first reason we have this symbolic meal together, as we call it, is to remember. Paul writes, he writes to the church, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So 
every time we do the ceremony, every time we come together and we practice the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever words you used that makes it familiar for you, we remember, we remember the cost of what Jesus took upon himself for the forgiveness of our sins. We remember. Another reason to do this is to rejoice. We remember, that's that heavy part, but we rejoice. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul writes, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, you know, we're not just looking back and remembering, but we're pointing forward also. So when we share together in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have something to look forward to. Not just the forgiveness of sins, but an eternal future with our Lord and Savior. So you have remember, you have rejoice. And another reason for the meal was allow time to repent. Now, Paul writes again, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in the Lord of the unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, we went through Corinthians already and we know that the Corinthian church was a dumpster fire. And Paul had to speak very directly to what was going on within the life of the church. And he also added, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So again, a time of reflection or repentance. And I think this is the beauty of sharing communion. It actually provides an opportunity for ourselves to, to examine ourselves. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to shine his piercing light on anything in our lives that is unworthy, we actually now have this opportunity to repent, we, to, to experience his forgiveness and grace, this new cleansing so that we can celebrate worthily, guilt-free, with no shame, as Steph would say. And I think too many times believers approach this ceremony, this sacred time, thinking, look at I've sinned, I'm not worthy enough to participate, you know. I'll just say this, that's the wrong thought. The table is God's grace being presented to us, being invited to come and to eat. And if there was ever a time when a believer, if you identify you as a believer, needed a tangible, tangible experience to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, the table is it. It truly is. So this is what I'd like you, us to do today. I want us to use this time to take the cup. I want us to take the bread. We're going to try to figure out, we, this is going to be a little bit chaotic and we're in no rush, so I'm not too worried about that. But once we go to the, the cross, so we have, we'll have a team here, a team to my right, and one at the back. And it's, it's interesting because we watch this, and sometimes I've been the one serving communion. And I don't know, uh, you know, when we're wearing masks, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But we actually are saying something to you when you come and receive the element. Many of you may not hear it, but we're saying the body of Christ given to you the blood of Christ shed for you. I want to invite you when you go and you receive your element, as you walk up and it's handed to you, that our hosts are going to say the body of Christ given to you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Look them in the eye. 
Just look them in the eye. Too many times I've seen people just come and take the elements and go and sit down real quick. No, 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 stop. It's a long weekend. You're not going anywhere. You're here. If you were going somewhere, you would have. Let's enjoy the moment. Let's enjoy this fellowship time together. You know, it's, it's, it's a simple ceremony. And when you think about it as Christians, we share this. Multiracial, male, female, young, old, non-married, married. This has been done around the world for eh, 20 centuries. But we're about to participate. And here at Seoul, we practice an open communion table, which means that if you're a believer, you're more than welcome to participate. However, if you're not a believer and you're just saying, I'm not sure there, and you're just checking out this whole faith thing, please look at all I ask is that you sit back and relax and just take it all in and watch. Watch. You, nobody cares. We're not worried about that. Just watch. Don't do something that you have no idea of what it means. And if for any reason you as a believer choose not to partake today, that's fine too. And, and, and feel free just to remain in your seat while the worship team leads us. So again, once you go and you pick up the items to make your way back to your seat, then we're going to participate together. Um, and how am I going to do this? I'm going to basically say if we can just divide right up the middle here and if you guys can make your way to that side and then you figure out how to get back in. And again, we're in no rush. We're the same here. And those are on the last three, five back rows. There's a station right behind you. You can help yourself there. So why don't you stand with me? And at this point, if you uh, are choosing to participate, please make your way to the appropriate station and we'll participate together. Blood has left me forgiven Pure like the whitest of
Yet together, first verse. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, This is my body. Healing, peace, restoration, reconciliation, our hope, our future. And so, Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the body. We thank you for what you've did for us. And Lord, we thank you that there is healing, that there is hope, there is strength. Lord, we thank you that you put us back together again when we receive this. And we think in remembrance in that. We're looking back, we're looking within, and we're looking ahead in remembrance of you. Let us break the bread and take it together, shall we? And the same night he took the cup, he lifted it up, and he said, this is the blood of the New Testament. This is the new covenant. This is forgiveness. This is the beginning. This is the fresh start. This is the difference in eternity, and this is what he did. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the blood that was shed for our sins. Lord, I thank you that we say again, we need you, Jesus. We're really nothing without you. And across church life, and no matter what has gone on, we thank you, Father, that there is forgiveness of sin. And we pray right now that you would lift any shame, that you would lift the guilt, that you would lift the heaviness off our life, God, because of the blood of Jesus. Lift it, lift it in Jesus' name. Let's take this cup. Let's worship and be thankful that sin is lifted off our life. Stand with me. Let's sing the ver second verse again.
Creator God, we take the body of blood of your Son into our bodies. Let Jesus be a part of us as you are a part of him. So guide our hearts, our thoughts, and allow us to be one in the body of Christ. And may Christ be part of all we think about and do. And may his body and blood nourish and make us whole again. Amen and amen. And Steph, you come and pronounce the blessing over us. And those who are able-bodied, if you can help us stack chairs eight high before you leave, that would be great. So in ancient times, the one who blessed extended their hands, and the ones who wanted to receive the blessing did likewise. So, Soul Sanctuary, may you trust God enough to mold you into his image and allow your heart to be filled with faith. May you let him guide your actions so that you can live a life that is abundant and with an eternal perspective. May you hear the convicting of the Holy Spirit as he leads you and transforms you. May you keep your eyes fixed on him and him alone. May you know the glorious hope of the resurrection of Christ. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week. Bye.